Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Hello. Hello. Uh, Alex and I were joined today by Justin McMahon, who is the head of football analysis for Sydney FC in the A-League. Today's episode, fascinating episode. Goodness me, they're all good these days, aren't they? Uh, Anyway, we spoke to Justin uh, firstly about how the transfer system differs uh, in the A-League, which is very interesting and actually in some ways quite unique, we think. Um, A little bit about how that presents either problems or opportunities for him within his role. Um, and what his role actually is, because unusually, uh, at least in the way that we understand it, uh, Justin operates both across the sort of scouting aspect of things, bringing new players in, and also across um, analysis of the of the playing team as well. So he, you know, it's a quite a holistic role. I think he describes it as. Um, anyway, we're going to discuss many of those things and more. Would you like to add anything, Alex? Um, I would just like to add that Football Manager comes up. Um, yeah, naturally. And- naturally as these things always do um and yeah it's a really good insight into how a a very very different transfer system works um and uh we also talk about uh manchester city's involvement in melbourne and how that affects things a little bit um the in-game stuff was what really gripped me the idea that the him and the arrested analysts are sat in the in the coach's box and uh they've got this the big tech setup going on and they're they're, the, the game of chess discussion basically that was very interesting Towards the end of the episode. Yes, yes. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, if you would like, on a sort of separate note, but not really a separate note, to read uh, work from The Athletic that relates to data and analytics, you can find that. And you can find that uh, with a free trial. If you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, T-I-F-O, you can get, you can claim that deal, which I said uh, in early this earlier week's podcast I couldn't remember what it is and I still can't so I actually (laughs) actually don't know what the offer is right now this is going really well there's a really good offer it is really good it's one of two things but it, it, it is good and both of them include a free trial so regardless of the case I know we, we, we referenced this before but if you haven't already do read Adam Crafton's big piece on, on data and football it's fascinating that was the one uh, before the, the podcast where we spoke to Heels Brower um, that's a really interesting read so you can go and do that for free by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO and you'll tell us what the offer is because we clearly don't know uh, anyway here without further ado is Justin McMahon. Justin, can you start by just sort of taking us through the differences or, or the key differences in the, the transfer system from the A-League to what we're more accustomed to here in the, the Premier League or Europe, for example? Absolutely. Um, the A-League's got a, a whole series of pretty unique rules that govern the transfer system here. Probably the, the most interesting one is the salary cap. So there's really only the A-League and the MLS that have that sort of system. For us, it's referred to as a, a hard cap. So that essentially means that um, everything is included in that capping from agents' fees to um, to some travel expenses, etc. And ultimately what it means is that we have a, a ceiling that we can pay all the wages of our players within. So for us, it's $3.2 million, um, And that means that the whole squad needs to be paid within that $3.2 million limit. We also have a, a 90% salary floor, which means that every club is required to spend 90% of that at a minimum, which is $2.88 million. Oh. So you have this sort of 
artificially condensed nature of the league where everyone's within $320,000 of each other. And then we have a, a five foreigner rule and we're allowed to have two players exempt from the cap as marquees. So you have 3.2 million plus two players if you choose to use it. Can I ask about the salary floor thing? Is, is that an uh, idea just to make sure that it is more equal between the teams or is that something to ensure that the, the ownership of the teams can actually afford to, to meet that? Um, it, it's definitely something aimed specifically to keep the competition even. I guess in some respect it does ensure that the owners of all the clubs do provide some sort of funding to the teams that they're not floating particularly low. But it's pretty common to see that in Australia across sports that we see it with our, our rugby league competition as well. Um, and it's something that, yeah, I think in, in the UK you have that a little bit with a couple of competitions, but as far as world football goes, it seems to be relatively unique. And do you see that reflected in the results of the, of the league finishing positions, that, that, that even nature of the teams? In, in some senses, I think you see it longitudinally more than anything else because right. it's proven really difficult over time for a team to sort of have a monopoly of the trophies, for lack of a better term. It seems to really ebb and flow in phases. So a team might be really successful for a couple of years and then someone else will sort of come along and you never really see anyone, with a couple of exceptions over the years, you never really see anyone put a huge gap on the rest of the competition. Right, okay. And in terms of the salary cap, does that that's it, right? I mean, it, you, there's no luxury tax like there is with the NBA. And, and, and does, does that go up year on year? Um, yeah, so it kind of has gradually gone up um, as the league's sort of health has improved. But yeah, that really is it. The the one place that we can get exemptions um, within the cap is with player loyalty. So they allow after a couple of years, a small percentage of a player's contract to be outside of the cap. But that does have limits um, in terms of how far you can go with an individual player and overall. Um, but that's probably the one area that you can get a little bit of space, but it's not, you know, it's, it's no massive break. Um, we have had a couple of instances before of having guest players out here that have also been kind of external to the cap. An example, that would be someone like a David Villa coming over right, uh, for yeah. a few games a while ago. But broadly speaking, the cap is is pretty limiting. And the loyalty uh, aspect of it, what's the thinking behind that? Is it just to try to stop players moving regularly? Or, I mean, there's a benefit to the club there, isn't there? So what, what's the thinking? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's definitely a benefit to the club. Um, in terms of the, the origins of the rules, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the main purpose would have been, but... Where we mostly see it come into effect is that the Australian market is very unique where most players sign quite short-term contracts because there are some other considerations as far as transfers. Like we have no domestic transfer fees allowed, um, which is, I'm assuming, really unique as far as the world goes. I don't know of anywhere else that has that. Yeah. And it means that players generally sign very short-term contracts in the A-League. Um, it's very common for guys to sign for one or two years. And we, we really have about half the playing population coming off contract in a given year. And um, having some sort of loyalty bonus kind of um, incentivizes teams to give longer contracts. Right. When players are, are purchased by teams outside of Australia, presumably there is a transfer fee that comes in for that. Given that there's no internal transfer market and given that the types of players you can attract with the salary cap and so on maybe limits the pool a bit. What happens to the transfer fees that come into a club when they sell a player? Okay, so I guess to circle back a little bit, you don't see many transfer fees at all paid by Australian clubs. Um, there was one example this season with our Riley McGree moving to Adelaide um, and that was that was one where he was, he was brought back and uh, I think they've been sort of 
pretty open about the idea that you know he's playing really well as a young player and then they may be able to recoup that sort of money. But generally, Australian clubs don't really pay transfer fees. You're looking more at getting players off contract and free transfers. If a, if the transfer fee is spent, it does contribute to the cap though. Um, can I ask, okay, I mean, it's very interesting. And I think, yeah, as you mentioned, like the no domestic transfer fees thing it must be unique. I don't think I've heard of that anywhere else. I mean, perhaps not, but certainly I don't know. Um, but how does this impact the overall quality of the league or the, or the growth of that quality, do you think? Because presumably the A-League has a desire to not necessarily compete with, with Serie A and the Premier League, for example, but to, to go from strength to strength. Um, how does the league see those rules fitting in with, uh, with, with growth in that regard? Do you, uh, working at a club, do you find those prohibitive or, or do you find, them, find that they help your job? Um, I, I think in, in some respects they do, as we were sort of saying before, in, enforce some sort of level playing field across the league because you don't end up in a situation where, say, one club with more, more financial capacity is able to sort of hoard players within the league um, and really sort of monopolize the market in that sense. And in, any, in terms of any sort of sales or growth, that generally tends to happen with overseas sales. So we've started to see a bit more of that um, with Aaron Moy, for example, yeah. uh, going from the A-League, now playing in the Premier League and doing quite well. So since that's happened in the last couple of years, more Australian players have been sold overseas. And that's really where um, financial value has been in terms of selling players, because obviously we can't, can't do it with each other. Um, in terms of how that um, affects sort of growth of the league generally, I guess it's, it's hard to say as, as far as growth within the, the clubs themselves. It's probably quite prohibitive in that sense. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of think Aaron Moy being a quite a good example, uh, a, a, a overseas proponent of, of Australian football and of, and of the A-League. Do, do, I don't know. Do you think perhaps uh, he's maybe... You know, the fact that he plays in the UK now might be a signpost to the A-League or do you think it's another case of maybe one of the league's best players being being taken out and playing elsewhere? I think there's there's definitely some sort of signposting in, in that sense. As you said, we've um we've just sold one of the national under-17s players to Brighton as well right. in the last couple of months. So I think in, in a very direct sense, you see that influence of an Australian doing well and then the, you know, the same club or a club that's been involved with him then wanting to get involved in that. Um. But yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to say in terms of how it'll work longitudinally because we're still a relatively young league and it is a very different set of rules, as I said, compared to, to other places. Um, I think generally speaking, a, a lot of people would sort of want to see you know, more of a market for player sales within Australia and, and overseas, but that's starting to emerge more and more in time. And well, what's your position personally, if you can answer <laughs> the question on... Um on the the no transfer fees for uh, for domestic players, I think it's a fascinating idea, and I like the idea that that leagues elsewhere can can learn from uh, from maybe what might be seen as, as mistakes elsewhere. I mean, you know, you mentioned the idea already of of having a system where one club uh, domestically can't hoard all of the best players. I mean, we certainly see that well, not necessarily with one club, but we see that with with a handful of clubs in in the Premier League, for example. Um, however much people say that it's a you know the most even competition there is. Uh, what is your personal view of the of the no domestic transfer fees thing? Does that does that inhibit you trying to to do your job, which presumably is is scouting for domestic players who who might be willing to to join Sydney? Yeah, I, I think in that sense, it definitely does limit what we can do in terms of bringing players into our specific club. Um, probably the other area that it might be a little bit limiting is on the academy side for some clubs. So let's say you weren't 
a team that was competing for major domestic honours, but your academy was doing quite well. Yeah. Um, you, you don't have the capacity to sell players internally within the Australian market. We have an under-23s loaning system, but, you know, you don't have that capacity to sell to, say, us at Sydney, for example. Um, so, unless you're able to sell the players overseas, there's no way for you to sort of make a profit on them. Yeah. Um, so, so, in that sense, maybe, maybe in a sense, it would be better to have uh, the capacity to sell internally. Um, but I think there are, like any rules, real pros and cons associated with it. In some senses, it makes the league much more interesting as far as scouting goes and, uh, and presents some really unique challenges, which are also kind of fun, I think, as an analyst. In terms of the Melbourne City Football Club, they're, they're part of the City Group. Um, yeah. And, and part of what uh, the City Group are trying to do is, is, I think, set up this network of clubs where players can be developed and then potentially moved within... Um, the, the city group itself or, or be turned for a profit. How how does that work given all of these constraints within the Australian system? It seems like a slightly odd choice for City to expand into that um, given, you know, how, how complex and constrained the Australian transfer system is. Yeah, I think there's, there's definite truth to that. Um, what we've sort of seen um, in terms of more specific examples, if you take the Aaron Moy example as one, so he was playing at our Western Sydney Wanderers and he was then purchased uh, by Manchester City and then ended up being loaned to Melbourne City at the time. Um, But in terms of the the ins and outs of that sort of movement, uh, I think there was then a little bit more of a clamp down on that sort of stuff um, because some people sort of perceive that may have been unfair, for example. But you're right, it's certainly a, a unique choice of club in, in the scape of the overall city football group um it's it's hard to say you know without being in the city football group exactly what their their sort of ambitions are are with the club but it's certainly unique um but i think the the market sort of shown that there is value in taking players you know over to england that they can sort of work with under the the melbourne city banner and have some experience in the city football group and then potentially have the capacity to move them overseas we had another example in the last couple of years with uh, Daniel Arzani, who went to the World Cup with Australia. He's a quite a young player who went to Melbourne City and then essentially through those sorts of connections ended up transferring to Celtic. Um, so there, there is sort of um, there is precedence of them using the, the Melbourne City team and then their platform, I guess, to springboard players into Europe. So that's so you said that, that that's now um, they've they've cracked down on those sorts of activities taking place. Would it be fair to say? Do you think if we're speculating that perhaps one of the reasons that Melbourne City was purchased as part of the network was because they saw that the Aaron Moy type move as a as a means of of negotiating the the, the sort of salary restrictions, sorry, the transfer restrictions that we're talking about here? A little bit of not cheating, but you know, uh, naughtiness. <laughs> um, I'm really not sure to be honest. Um, when they when that sort of move first happened, I think obviously everyone kind of looked at it and went, oh, that's kind of clever with what, <laughs> with what they'd done. But um, whether that was something that they, they'd specifically eyed up, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't really speak to it, to be honest. But it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting one at the time, definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, let's talk about you uh, now that we know how Australian football works. We're all experts now. Um, you are the head of analytics for Sydney FC. That, is that your ac- accurate job title, Justin? Yeah, so the the official title is head of head of football analysis, but I guess it's sort of horses for courses, really. Oh, okay. Yes, apologies for that. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. So, can you explain? Presumably, that means that you oversee both uh, scouting and incoming players, and 
also you oversee the players at Sydney FC currently? Yeah, correct. So I guess in a sort of holistic sense, you could sort of think of it as a, a combination of all the the data analysis side of things and um, and also all the video analysis. So that includes everything from the recruitment side of things to opposition analysis, uh, preparing for games, anything that we do during the match, um, player review, all, all that sort of stuff um, falls under our umbrella. Right, okay. Well, okay so now we, we have sort of fresh in the mind the idea of the Australian transfer system. How uh, does someone in your position go about scouting for players within a league where you can't sort of, you can't uh, pay, for the, pay for them to join you? Presumably, does that mean that there's a lot of swap deals? Is that how it works? Uh, not so many swap deals, but it means that if we do sort of wider data and video scouting, a, a huge part of that from my perspective is making sure that any players that I sort of look at are available to come on freeze right. um, or that their contracts are expiring. So it's just sort of another another sort of hoop to jump through in that sense. Um, it yeah, certainly it narrows kind of, the field though, right? Presumably in a oh, way it absolutely. kind of makes your job easier. <laughs> it, it does. It's... Um, I guess, yeah, as, as you said, in some senses, it does narrow the field a lot, but it can be frustrating at times when yeah. someone pops up in your searches that you think is a really exciting proposition and then you find out that a week ago they signed a four-year deal somewhere. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It makes life a bit more difficult. But, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a big part of it. So we do run wider sort of data scouting in a, in a sort of traditional sense. Um, and then, yeah, that just needs to be an additional step along the way for us. The, the job that you do is, um, I think in, in a lot of English clubs, it would be two jobs. There would be two different people. One would be in charge of player analysis for the squad. Another would be in charge of, of recruitment. Do you think the integration of those two roles within one person makes it easier because you're already cognizant of what the squad's strengths and weaknesses are to a greater degree perhaps than in, you know just, just ahead of recruitment would be? Um, you can see the style that the team wants to play very easily. And, and so does that make it easier to scout for players using data? I think in some respects it does. You're definitely right that in a lot of places in the UK, for example, there'd almost be two entirely different departments. And generally speaking, I think the more integration there is or communication between departments is generally a positive thing. Um, from my perspective, it really does operate in that sort of sense because we're we're really governed by quite a clear philosophical identity at the club. So being involved in the day-to-day tactical side of things does make that infinitely easier when it comes to recruiting players, like you said, because I've spent the the whole year sort of working with the team on on sort of tactical ins and outs. So then when I'm looking for a player uh, to meet the head coach's needs, it's it's easy to have a very clear picture of how someone would would work in our setup. And who sets the uh, the sort of the tactical identity at, at Sydney? Then are you are you responding to what the head coach uh, is is instituting with the team, or, or are you working with the head coach, um, overseeing that, and and then you know finding players that fit that system? No, and no, I'm I'm definitely more more responding to the needs of a coach. I think the the role of an analyst, particularly in the the video side of things, is really to be like a like a supplementary um, or, or a conduit for the coach's needs. So once the coach sort of expresses how he wants to go about things, it's really my my job to help express that and make that as clear as possible. Um, as far as setting the overall identity of the team, it's it's one that's sort of been in place for sort of, I guess, sort of four, five, five years now. And obviously a given coach can make adjustments within that sort of structure, but there is a, a broad philosophical identity that we operate under. Um, and then me moving to the team has been 
it's been sort of my responsibility to sort of learn that and then work within within that framework. Can you describe to us what the broad philosophy is? Oh, in in terms of like broad tactical setup, or yeah, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's sort of formational components that first and foremost, and then in terms of just some of the the movements that we use. Um, in terms of our, our, our build-ups and the ways we press and things like that, there are sort of overarching elements that have been consistent over a period of time. Um, and then, yeah, obviously it's just little things within that um, more than anything else. So it's it's just sort of like a, a stylistic way of playing the game in the same way that you'd see it at most clubs that have that sort of philosophy. Um, and I, I, I just, oh, oh, sorry to interrupt. Just, I just wondered, like, the reason I asked that question is because I'm always curious as to as to why clubs make the decisions that they do about about style of play you know and often we I don't know like the, the most sort of access we get to, to this is let's say we talk about when Sheikh Mansour took over Manchester City for example and uh, we heard from the beginning there that the impetus was going to be to play a, you know an attractive style of attacking football and obviously you know we infer from that that you know they want to make some they want to make their entertainment product look attractive they want to encourage fans to come and watch them and perhaps earn new supporters and stuff but I'm curious as to why different clubs make different decisions which is which is why I was uh, asking the question and I appreciate that you joined after that uh, broad philosophy was already put in place but I just wondered if you could speak to that at all yeah I think it's um it's an interesting one if you look at that example with with Newcastle I can understand you know new owners wanting to come in and, and place of I guess what you'd label an exciting brand of football because at the end of the day you want to not only be successful but entertain your fan base as well yeah um in in our case I think there's there's also like an understanding of how the sort of league works like in in Australia um to play if you want to take sort of like a like a Manchester City or Liverpool style approach here it would obviously be different with the demands of our league with it being in summer um, with the sorts of travel that are involved and things like that, it would be quite hard for teams to play in that exact sort of manner. Um, So you wouldn't really see a team in Australia, um, you know, with a really, really high press every, every week of the year being really successful at it when it's 40 degrees every weekend during summer. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it's 40 degrees Celsius as well. I should make that, that clear. (laughs) Far too hot basically. Yeah. Far too hot. Um, Yeah. So, there's sorts of elements relative to the league. Um, but yeah, in terms of that general approach, I think that's pretty consistent across the board with most clubs. You obviously want to be successful, but also do it in a way that's that's pleasing for the fans, especially if you're someone that's coming into a club with, with a, a little bit of money in, in this case and you have the capacity to, to go and buy some of the world's best players potentially. Mm. In terms of, of philosophy and, and style, particularly within a league that... Uh, you know, you, you guys play each other three times. The teams know each other really quite well. Do you find that there is a, a value then in looking at players that may be in squads that don't quite suit their abilities but would, would suit yours more? Or conversely, you've got players who you know are good but they don't fit the philosophy and the style that you're looking for. And so there's an incentive for kind of trades within the league to, to find players their their sort of natural stylistic home, as it were. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, in terms of finding value in the league, obviously, with it being salary capped, the idea of finding value for your budget is probably pushed to the forefront even more than it would be at most places in the world. And in the A-League, it's quite strange, I guess, in a sense, because with no domestic transfer fees, with there only being 
you know, a small portion of players that we can look at. Everyone's essentially looking at the same guys. You know, you're not going to see a player come off contract that hasn't been looked at by every club in the league. Um, so I find that if you're going to find value or play to the best capacity that you can within those sorts of limitations, you do want to find players that can maximize their capacity in your style of play. Um, an example I sort of used before is, you know, if you had a, a tall striker, for example, um, and you were a team that played with you know a couple of wingers who were good one-on-one and delivered high-quality crosses, um, that that player might be able to score more goals in your team than he would in another and hence provide more value um, in your respective budget. So I think there's a, there's a large element of that. You do see swap deals occur occasionally in the league. It's not as common as just sort of a straight free transfer sort of deal, but it does happen on that basis as well. Um, and yeah, you see players that take like a mutual termination in January, for example, and then move to another club as a way of kind of moving the market around. Um, but I think there's there's definite truth to that. Is there almost a degree of cooperation between clubs because they understand that, that that's a thing that works across the league, that every team is different, every team has slightly different styles. And so there's a sense that you, you don't partly enforced by the salary cap but you're you're not looking to hoover up everybody and so clubs are almost cooperative in terms of well we won't go for that guy we know that you're probably more likely to be interested in him but for that reason can you not go for this guy who suits us really well yeah to to an extent i think um it's not so much that you you wouldn't go for a player that you think would would suit you so that another club could could have him in that sense but there is a, a degree of you know, say you get a few months into the season, the January window is coming around and someone's not working in, in your philosophy or whatever it may be, um, you do see players sort of, let's say, mutually terminate their contract and sign for another club a day later. Um, you do see a little bit of that happening sometimes. Not, not so much with our club. We've been pretty stable, but that does tend to happen a little bit around the league. Um, so I guess in that sense, there is, is that, that. Sorry, I, is that driven by the clubs, the players or the agents? Probably a combination of all three, to be honest. Um, and I think that's that's the same with anything in football. You see that in Europe as well. Someone might, might make a move and for whatever reason it, it doesn't work and you get interest from another club. It's just the, the nature of the rules that we have, have here mean that they can't immediately turn around and sell that player. So they're, they're more inclined to try and find a way to to mitigate that. What's really interesting about, uh, I think what you're saying is that given the the sort of limitations that you have to act within, I think it it sort of forces you to have, um, forces the clubs to have more of a comprehensive uh, tactical philosophy in a way that maybe we don't, you know, we certainly see with some clubs in the UK, but we also see clubs that flip from from one thing to another, um, I suppose, because they can then just go out and buy players that that will fulfill whatever their their new desire is. I wondered, off the back of that, how much contact do you have with your counterparts at other clubs? Do you have a Christmas party where you all meet up and talk about this? Or would you be able to say, for example, what your counterpart at another club is likely to, to, to be going for? Um, to an extent. I mean, we have, a, we have an analyst WhatsApp group across the league. So we're, <laughs> nice. all, we're all in contact with each other in some respects. And everyone sort of knows each other. I think as, as analysts, there's a little bit more of that as well because when we travel to opposition venues, for example, we have a lot of a lot of setup to do with the respective coaches' boxes. So right. if you haven't been to a venue before, you know, you're definitely going to get in contact with the analyst at that club and they're going to sort of help and show you around and help you get set up. So, What's the setup for? For, for, for the stuff during the game? Yeah, yeah. So, so during the game, um, 
we, we do a, a whole heap of stuff from the coach's box. So we're involved in sending video and data down to the bench. Um, I'm mic'd up with the assistant coach as well. Um, and then the other assistant coach is up in the box with me. And then at halftime, we'll run down and show some video to the coach and potentially to the players as well as part of the halftime address. So there's there's a lot happening. Oh, wow. Could you, could, I mean, I don't know if you, if you would want to, but would you be able to give us an example of that? I'm, I've never really heard of that before. I guess it makes lots of sense that that would be the case, but it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, it's something that sort of happened a couple of years ago. The sort of laws around uh, bench technology changed. And uh, we saw a little bit of it around the World Cup as well. But essentially what it means is that we're allowed to have in-ear communication from the coaches' boxes, which is, a, I guess, a more sort of eagle-eyed perspective, a bit more sort yeah. of a football manager perspective, for lack of a better term, <laughs> um, looking, looking above the game. So we get to see things from a really different perspective, and um, that, that just allows us to give more tactical insight. I think the, the main change that's come about with that is – if you go back sort of four or five years as an analyst, when I'd be in the coach's box, you didn't have as much direct interaction with what was happening pitch side. So if you went down to give information at half time, you were sort of addressing the half as a whole. Yeah. And what I've started to notice now is that the game's a lot more chess-like in the sense that you'll start the game and within five minutes, everyone's sizing up what the other team's doing tactically and you'll be making adjustments and then it almost goes in sort of five and ten minute increments. And the, the shape and overall structures of the game will change a lot within a half of football now. So having that communication allows you to constantly adjust to moves that the opposition coach makes. Um, and also be a little bit more specific with the state of the game when you come in at half time, Because you can really address what's happened in the last five minutes as opposed to something that happened 40 minutes ago. And with your pre-game preparation for, for, for stuff like this, is it possible, do you think, to predict the sorts of changes that an opposition coach might make? So you're not, you know, responding within or reacting within five minutes of game time to something which you, you weren't expecting. Do you mostly see that, um, you know, given like a game of chess, if you're going to move your pawn here, you, it's likely that the opposition player is going to move their bishop. Do you, it, does it work in the same way like that? Yeah, I think so. Um, as a general... I think the way I've always sort of approached it is you want to go into a game with a really clear idea of how you think it will play out. So for me, the worst thing that can possibly happen is that I get surprised. Right. Um, so generally speaking, I want to go out there with a pretty clear idea of how I think the opposition will set up, how I think they're going to deal with certain threats that we present. And then in the event that they make certain decisions that we have something up our sleeve for it. So, you know, our tactical preparation during the week with our players can be geared in that sense you know you're, you're obviously trying to predict what an opposition coach will do and arm the players with solutions but then also have discussion as well relative to what's happening so we're we're pretty lucky in that more often than not a combination of our, our preparation but also just having really intelligent players means yeah. that when problems are posed during the game you can kind of see them talking through it and coming up with solutions but then we can also offer further guidance if something is a little bit different that's fascinating. When was the last time you were surprised? Um, fortunately, I don't think it happens too often. We've had a couple of teams just change formation on us completely. You know, like right. a team will, team will turn up at our home ground and play a back five that the coach hasn't done in six years or something like that. <laughs> um, so you've got, to, you've got to be ready for stuff like that. But generally speaking, it's, um, yeah, I think we, we tend to go okay. I, th I think one thing that I've learned in this role relative to being sort of on the outside looking in in my younger days is that 
the the changes that we desire, I think sometimes as fans watching a club are a little bit more, for lack of a better term, sort of macro and a little bit more sort of formational. Yeah. You know, you'll see a, a team play against you with a front two and go, okay, why aren't we playing a back three this week? And uh, when you when you work with a team, I think you realize that even within a certain structure, I mean, we ostensibly play four four two every week, but within a certain structure, there's a whole heap of, of movements and rotations and and ideas so that the players have a very clear picture of where their teammates will be and they have that tactical flexibility to deal with whatever shape they're presented with. Sort of in the same way that, you know, when Pep Guardiola was at Barcelona and he started having his defensive midfielder drop between the centre-backs to build with a back three, taking that sort of principle because, you know, he wasn't necessarily changing his overall formation, but right. you have that flexibility. And that that's sort of at play all the time with us. We have a whole host of different movements that we do um, and then if we choose to use any of them in a given game, everyone kind of understands all the respective positions to take up based on one small movement. That's fascinating. And uh, that gives a lot more flexibility. Does, does that mean that when you're recruiting, you're looking for players with high football intelligence as well as requisite technical skills? Or do you have confidence that you can recruit a player who is technically good and fits the system and then teach them the football intelligence? Yeah, so essentially I think having players with a high footballing IQ is is important because you do want them to be able to make decisions on the pitch. Uh, there have been circumstances before where, um, you know, we, we've been sort of frantically discussing something um, with the bench during the game and then while we come up with a solution, we already see players implementing what we're talking about and then being a couple of minutes ahead of us, which is, um, which is pretty fantastic when it happens. It makes your life a lot easier. Um, so I guess sort of circle back, it's, it's obviously beneficial to try and bring players in that do have that sort of football IQ and we are quite quite fortunate in that sense. How do you look but for I that, Justin? It's, it's difficult in the sense that from a, a sort of data perspective, it's not the easiest thing yeah. to look for. Um, but you're sort of looking for, if anything, more the sort of flexibility in the ways that players might approach certain um, situation or some sort of quality that you, you notice in their decision-making capabilities um, because it's hard to say sometimes um, how they've been told to play in a specific team because, you know, you're not involved in those, those tactical discussions. So you might want yeah. a player to adopt a different position. But if you, if you look at the nature of their decision-making over time and the way that they approach certain situations, you can get a bit of a feel for the player as much as you can without obviously working with them. And so that's in video scouting more so than in, you know, perusing over the, the, the data, for example. Could you see that in numbers or do you need to, do you need to watch them play to, to, to measure their decision making? I think, I think you can get a gauge of some things with the data more than others. Um, so if you take an example of like a progressive passing metric, for example. So if you're a team that wants to, to build through the lines and a player is consistently producing good progressive pass numbers, um, it gives you at least the indication that they'll be able to do the sorts of things that you want. Um, whether those decisions are, are correct at certain times is something that you may need to consult the video for for a little bit more detail. But you can certainly do the the early parts of, of shaping your data um, and get some sort of indication. Right, that's interesting. Do you mind if I ask you uh, uh, a few questions about you personally? Yeah, of course. Um, is your life football now? Have you found that your job has sort of overtaken your life in that in that regard, or are you are you able to switch off at night time? Um, it's it's certainly a big part of it, but it always has been. Um, I've always always loved football. It's always what I've wanted to be involved in. Um, I do try to make a habit of forcing myself to 
to switch off when I sort of leave the office in the yeah. afternoon and, and have something else to do. Um, yeah, it's a, it certainly takes up probably the, the majority of my time, but I, but yeah, you have to have that separation. I think, I think if I had to, if I was doing the same thing 24 hours a day, I'd go mad. And do you watch leagues, um, elsewhere? I, I do when I can. Um, obviously when we're in season, it's a little bit more difficult than yeah. at other times. Um, and the game's coming thick and fast, but I try and keep on top, broadly speaking, try and keep on top of what's happening around the world. And, um, at least watch a bit of different leagues. We also tend to have a lot of football on in the office in our sort of players' lounge area. We'll often have games on, so yeah. we end up watching a lot of football organically. Um, so, yeah, I try and keep abreast of things as much as possible. How do you split your time between the two halves of your role? Because, I mean, a lot of recruitment stuff is going to be ongoing while the season's on and you're trying to advise the coach and be part of the performance analysis, like... How, how do you balance those two competing things? I think you sort of said it yourself there, where the, the recruitment stuff is kind of ongoing. So if you're doing the early part of the recruitment process or early sort of shortlisting um, with a lot of data and you're allowing that to sort of consistently be happening in the background, it doesn't need to take a huge proportion of my time on a day-to-day basis. It's something that's sort of always there that I can always get up-to-date info on when I need to tap into it. Um, so more of my day-to-day, particularly in season, is on the analysis side of things um, and the recruitment's kind of consistently ticking over, uh, for lack of a better term, and then I can sort of consult it pretty regularly and then obviously as things heat up, it's, it, it becomes a bigger part of the deal. And given that you can clearly balance those two things and there is an advantage to the person who runs recruitment being intimately aware of how the team's playing and what the coach wants to do, why do you think so many clubs split that role over two people? I think I think it's ultimately just making the most sort of efficient department that you can. I mean, one person can only do so much at the end of the day. I feel like I do a, a, a relatively good job of, of balancing everything and and managing it well. But, you know, if you're a well-resourced club, like anything, you're going to have a much bigger department and you're going to sort of become more specialised as much as possible. Um, and I think we're seeing that more, you know, if you take that Liverpool example with how, how far they've gone in terms of having quite specialty um, positions in their staff, I think that's just a natural evolution of having the resources available. Um, but by no means do I think it's something that can't be managed by, by one person or a small group of people. Did you play football manager, Justin? I did a lot. Okay. <laughs> this is this is. I like to ask these questions when we're talking to uh, talking to folks with your with your sort of job. Um, the 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 answer is always a resounding yes. Incidentally, although that's probably no surprise to anyone. How did you get into this this role? Um, so the background for me was, I, I think, like a lot of us, you know, I was a bit of sort of a, a, a football nerd, sort of growing up. But ha- came to the realization pretty young that I wasn't going to be able to make it as a professional. Um, and I, I clearly remember that. So I, I sort of decided in my really early teens, about sort of 13, 14, that I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be a football manager. That is early. Um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, I do remember there was a, a specific specific point. I remember I was 11 and I ended up at some trials and I just realized that some of the, uh, the kids around me were just miles better than I was. Uh, and uh, a few of them have gone on to you know play overseas and, and play at a really high level, far better than I ever could have. But I remember in that moment just deciding I was never going to reach that level. Was that a crushing feeling though, Justin? 
to an extent, maybe a little bit, but I always knew that I wanted to do something in the game. So I used to sort of get up at you know four in the morning as a as a kid and watch Champions League games with my little notepad and try and figure out the <laughs> tactics. Um, and then obviously have my have my phase of playing football manager a lot. Um, and then I always kind of thought I would go through uni, so do a PhD and be an academic and try and research sort of football methodologies while coaching. Yeah. But what ended up happening was I, I did my honours thesis on in-game analytics for decision-making. And then within sort of a couple of weeks, I was I was interviewing for my first role just through word of mouth. It was really nice. fortunate with timing. Um, football swallowed you. Yeah, it did. I mean, I was, I was really lucky with the, the teams I worked with early. I sort of fell into a couple of situations. I was working with teams that ended up being really successful in the periods that I was with. So my sort of formative education was was really good in that sense. Yeah. Hey, what is your uh, greatest football manager achievement? Oh, gee, that's that's hard to say. I remember I remember winning a couple of Champions Leagues in a row with with Sunderland a few years back, and then when um when I was like Sunderland till I die came out, then I was watching that, and you know you just have that feeling when you're watching it. You're like, oh, could have gone so differently. <laughs> yeah. But um, but obviously you know it's it's so different when you're playing the game. <laughs> Oh, very nice. And uh, I guess my final question really would be uh, to ask you about your uh, ambitions for, for your future career, Justin. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to say. I think I've ended up in a position where I'm, I really enjoy the environment where I'm in now. I think if, you, if I sort of asked that question a couple of years ago, I, I would have definitely been looking at, you know, traveling overseas and, and sort of trying to find my way around in, in Europe, for example. But at the moment, everything's so good uh, where I am, it would probably take a lot for me to, to move <laughs> at this stage right. um, more than anything else. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Football is a funny game in that sense. So stranger things have happened. What if they offered you the manager's job at Sunderland? Would you take that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I, I don't know how, I don't know how ready I would be for it, to be honest. My, my football manager credentials might not, um might not transfer perfectly. Okay. Hey, well, listen, Justin, thanks so much for joining us. I, th- I That was genuinely very fascinating. I feel like we had some, some great insights there. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, we will be back next week with, uh, with something else. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.